Hey, worldly listeners, Zach Beecham here. Just want to let you know that The Weeds is doing a midterm special every Wednesday up until November 7th. And you should go listen if you want to stay on top of the U.S. election, which I'm sure you do. Hello and welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Zach Beecham here with Alex Ward and Jen Williams. Hello. Hi. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about a mysterious disappearance that has people around the world really troubled. That's the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi, a prominent Saudi dissident and columnist for The Washington Post. We're going to talk about what we know about his case and what it means in the broader scope of global politics and for how we understand Saudi Arabia. But first, Jen, let's talk a little bit more about who Khashoggi is. He's this uh, Saudi journalist who is a dissident. He's been really critical of the regime. He wrote for this newspaper called Al Watan in Saudi Arabia. And in recent months and, and in the last like year or so, he's seen his fellow journalists, uh, bloggers, kind of other dissidents and activists be jailed and disappeared by the regime. So he fled to the United States. He's been living in Virginia. Um, and he's also been writing a column for The Washington Post. He used his platform in the Post to be quite critical of the Saudi regime, and this was coming at a time late last year, especially when people were quite excited about Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince who, who leads the country, and the reforms that he was putting forward about helping women drive or opening up movie theaters. And so he's asked on a BBC show in November 2017, and he's asked about these reforms. You have been calling for a long time now for reform in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We now see a man at the top who appears determined to deliver on reform. You delighted with what you're seeing in the Saudi capital? I, I might sound uh, throughout the show uh, with the con- conflicting messages. Yes, I am for reform, uh, but I'm also worried of one more role. So his argument there is that while reform in theory is good, in practice, what Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as he's called, is doing is really more of an authoritarian power consolidation, a move towards one-man rule, as Khashoggi calls it. And uh, we've said this on the show before. We think this is the view that smarter Middle East analysts have taken. But plenty of people, especially in the popular press, have been willing to buy MBS's argument that he's fixing and reforming Saudi Arabia and rooting out corruption and empowering women. But Khashoggi was the kind of guy who was not willing to let that propaganda line go publicly. Right. And so then his public life kind of got wrapped up in his private life. So Khashoggi is engaged to be married to a Turkish woman. He went to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to go get paperwork for that marriage. He was splitting his time between Turkey and the United States. Right, exactly. And so he goes, and then they say, basically, come back in a couple of days to process some forms. And then he goes back on October 2nd uh, with his fiance outside. And after he goes in, that's the last time that we've seen him. This is the part of the story that hits me personally really hard because she waited outside for 10 hours for him, just hoping he would show up. And I'm getting married in a few weeks now, and it's just like, I can imagine really acutely what that must have been like for her. Um, So the Turkish officials have footage that shows Khashoggi walking in to the front door of the Saudi consulate, and there's no footage that anyone can find of him ever walking out. He's just completely vanished. Nobody's heard from him. His fiance hasn't heard from him. The Washington Post hasn't heard from him. And so 
all this other kind of flurry of activity started to happen really quickly. You had the Saudi consul general there in Istanbul suddenly, in the middle of kind of all of this, calls all the Turkish staff who work at the Saudi consulate and tells them to take the rest of the day off. Everybody go home. Everybody clear out. You have big black vans driving away from the consulate. And then in the past few days, all these more really disturbing details have come out that really points to that there's really no other possible option at this point besides that Saudi Arabia was involved in either disappearing him, meaning kidnapping him and smuggling him on planes back to Saudi Arabia, or killing him there in the consulate. So one of the things that adds to the mystery of all this is we know that there was a 15-man team coming in from Saudi Arabia to Turkey uh, that morning. They came on two separate planes. They stayed in hotels nearby the consulate. And it looks like they went into the consulate that day before Khashoggi arrived and possibly left in those black vans that Jen was talking about. We don't know exactly what they did while they were there, but we do know that they left for first in in separate planes, one to Cairo, one to Dubai, before they both went to Riyadh, Saudi's capital. Right, but all in the same day, right? All in the same day. So you have this 15-man team, and we say team, like the Turkish officials, and I think the, the New York Times has actually verified their identities. These aren't just like random guys off the street, no, right? These, like, are, these are Saudi these security are, guys. These right. are in senior intelligence, like, operatives. And one's an autopsy expert. So there's your mystery. You have this two-plane team of 15 men who fly in for one day, all happen to go to the Saudi consulate on the same day that Khashoggi goes missing, and then fly out the same day, right? And so— Turkish investigators essentially believe that he was killed there in the consulate. Um, We don't know. He could still technically be alive, but it looks pretty grim right now. It seems highly likely uh, that he was killed in the consulate and that they smuggled his body out somehow. Again, it's also possible they could have just smuggled him out alive and taken him back on these planes. We don't know. But as of now, the Saudis have provided zero proof of life. There's, you know, no video of him, no statement, anything like that to prove that he's still alive. And all they've provided are these blanket denials. We had nothing to do with this and no explanation whatsoever. The actual consulate security footage has suddenly gone missing. uh, And Turkish officials believe Hmm, that it went missing back on one of those planes back to Riyadh. And to me, the the evidentiary cherry on top is a U.S. intelligence intercept that we learned about last night that went public that suggests that this was an order from the top, from from MBS himself, to take this guy. And I believe exfiltrate him. And U.S. intelligence, again, according to the report that we heard last night, believes that something went wrong in the exfiltration abduction process and, and they killed him. Right. So here's the big deal. This sounds really wild, right? Like it sounds like something out of a a spy film. Absolutely. But it's actually part of a larger pattern of of Saudi government behavior, and particularly under MBS, um, since he took over power. He's really been cracking down on all forms of dissent. He's been ruthlessly, like, disappearing and imprisoning activists. Um, He, remember, we did an episode uh, a while back about him rounding up, like, a bunch of prominent Saudi businessmen and, you know, really influential figures. Uh, Luckily, because they are prominent and rich and famous, they were imprisoned in the Ritz-Carlton. And and you may have heard about this great reform that he did to allow women to drive. Well, the women who led the movement demanding the right to drive, many of them have been arrested and jailed by MBS. Like, this is what the reform push looks like. It's a power consolidation masked by this kind of thing. And I believe they've also abducted people 
from other countries. Right. Yeah, this is not the first time this has happened. This is actually, as far as we know, at least the third time. They have gone to, in one instance, Jordan, uh, and in one instance, the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, and basically we call it rendered, right? Remember, it used to be extraordinary rendition back during the Bush administration. It basically means um, illegally kidnapping someone from one country and taking them to another country to be interrogated or imprisoned. And so they've done this rendition where they've stolen people who are Saudi citizens but who are living abroad, usually in exile because they know they're being targeted, and smuggled them on planes, very specifically, back to Riyadh, and they've never, you know, been heard from again, or they show up in prison. Were they also lured to embassies or consulates and picked up? Um, No, it wasn't explicitly like that. The the details are a little bit different, but in both cases, the details are really similar in the sense that it's the government keeping an eye on these dissidents who have loud mouthpieces and who are speaking out and tracking their movements and identifying a place where they can go— usually another kind of Arab or Muslim country because they have a lot kind of closer relationships in a lot of uh, cases to do this, and there's less likely to be kind of pushback. So it seems like, from what you described, this is a Saudi playbook, right? This is a common thing that they do. And so maybe one of the reasons why this happened to Khashoggi is just because he is another one of those prominent dissidents. But yeah, not just just another prominent person, right? Like, think about what it means to be a Saudi citizen who's criticizing the government in the pages of the Washington Post. Sure. MBS has spent a tremendous amount of effort, as the Saudis long have, trying to curry favor in Washington. And money. Yeah, money. Just lots (laughs) Lots of Lots and lots of money. So if you've got a monthly column in the Post like he does that's reaching the top levels of the U.S. government, as he was, and top influencers in the U.S., you are undercutting a massive Saudi investment in the United States in the attempts to sway the U.S. government. No, sure. So that that makes perfect sense. So I think when we're thinking of, you know, why did this happen, that's reason number one, right? It it could just be that he's this high-profile dissident ruining a Saudi project in America. Number two, and, and I give credit to Zach for pointing this out yesterday, is that Khashoggi was thinking of starting a pro-democracy group called Don, Democracy for Arab World Now. Great name, but it's a, a, it was not necessarily, and he was very explicit, not to take down the Saudi regime, but to open up a space for uh, human rights and, and democratic happenings throughout the region. Yeah, the problem with that is that by doing that, it does not bode well for a Saudi monarchy. Right, it's right. the very foundation of the Saudi regime. Absolutely. And so that could be reason number two connected to reason one, which is not only is he ruining the Saudi influence project in the United States, but he might be he might be helping foment political opposition to a, a monarchical rule in Saudi Arabia. So the, f- the flip side of this is that when you're so prominent and you get disappeared— you get a lot of attention. So the Washington Post did a really powerful thing, and they left a blank space where his column was. And and that is really significant in a newspaper. You know, they don't like to leave inches open, and it does a really important job of highlighting his disappearance. Yeah, there was this massive white space in the center of the newspaper, and it basically said, Jamal Khashoggi's column would be here and should be here, but he's missing. But there's also lots of journalists who, who don't get that kind of attention from right. Washington Post or anyone else. They aren't in the spotlight in the same kind of fashion in Saudi Arabia. Dissent is being stamped out domestically there in ways that Americans don't really pay attention to, which is what bothered me so much about the reform rhetoric that was so popular up until Khashoggi's disappearance. So if there's one thing that I hope can come out of this horrible turn of events— It's that people open their eyes to what the Saudi government actually is. 
And just to build on that, there's sort of a, a broader issue at play, which is that the United States may actually start pushing back against Saudi Arabia because of this, not the Yemen war, not because of these other dissident issues, because of this. Um, because you, he was in Virginia. He because, was a U.S. resident. Right, U.S. resident, Boston Post, prominent guy. I, I just find that that's, that's a fascinating little tidbit. But what's happening now is you see Trump is unhappy with this. Apparently, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, National Security Advisor John Bolton have talked to MBS. Jared Kushner as well, who is apparently tight with MBS. They've all had this conversation. You've even seen now uh, the Senate pushing back quite hard against— Bipartisan, too. By, yeah, by, it's a bipartisan issue. Um, basic point is that if it's, it's found out that Saudi Arabia it was behind this and Trump agrees— they can start sanctioning members of this of the Saudi royalty, and that using sanctions members. designed to target Russia initially, exactly. which would be an unprecedented step yep. for a U.S. ally like Saudi Arabia. Absolutely, right. and, and even beyond the government, you know, again, which is it's great that this is actually getting some attention. Um, even though it would have been great if you know other dissidents before had gotten attention sooner, so that this wouldn't have happened. Um, but it's spread even beyond just like the political watchers. Tech companies um, are now pulling out of. Uh, sponsorship agreements they've had for, like, big Saudi, you know, economic uh, tech expos and big kind of Saudi economic projects. Tech companies in the U.S. are now pulling their sponsorship from these things in protest, saying if you behave this way and until you, you know, unless and until you give us answers, we are not going to give you money. The New York Times actually was a corporate sponsor of uh, one of these big kind of expos in Saudi Arabia. They pulled their sponsorship as well. So, this is the kind of thing, it's not going to go away in the way that a lot of the previous kind of disappearances, the Saudis have been able to use their leverage um, in terms of oil, in terms of arms sales and things like that, and their close relationship with the U.S. to kind of get all this stuff swept under the rug, where we kind of look the other way. And it seems for, you know, whatever reason, in part because of its prominence, this one doesn't look like it's going to go away. And that's a really fucking good thing because this shouldn't go away. It's a massive test for MBS right now. And we will keep tracking it and following it. After the break, we're going to talk about an interesting turn of events in Romania. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew that it only costs $7 to make? No, that's dumb. Yeah, I wouldn't either. With Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. That's pretty cool. Everlane only makes premium essentials. Did you know that, Alex? I did not. Yeah, they use the finest materials without traditional markups. And here's what's rad. They tell you their real costs. Whoa. So you actually know that you're never overpaying. That's really rad. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why. And they're radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. That's pretty good. So right now, you can actually go and check out our personalized collection at everlane.com worldly. And plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's pretty awesome. It's everlane.com slash worldly. What was it, Alex? Uh, everlane.com slash worldly. Everlane.com slash worldly. So this year, I had a lot of long car rides. I just had to drive to various different places. I even drove from Washington to Canada. Like, it was just a lot of stuff. And so you have to do something to take up all of that time. And I listened to the audiobook of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which is one of my favorite Harry Potter books, even by the high bar that that series set. And the audiobook is just fabulous. The narration is really fun. You get to hear a cool interpretation on Hagrid's voice. There's a really funny pronunciation of Harry's name, Harry. 
Harry. And it's just this great listening experience. Anyway, you should check out Audible. Every month, Audible members get one credit good for any audiobook they choose, plus two Audible originals from a changing selection that you can't really get anywhere else. Uh, they also get access to audio, fitness, and health workouts created exclusively for Audible. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and listen anytime, like me with my Harry Potter books, uh, even if you cancel your membership. And if you didn't like your audiobook, you can exchange it. No questions asked. Go to audible.com slash worldly or text worldly to 500-500 to get started. That is audible.com slash worldly or a text to 500-500 to get started. On Elsewhere this week, we're going to be talking about Romania, where an attempt to ban same-sex marriage seems to have backfired pretty spectacularly. Alex, what's up here? Yeah, so the Romanian constitution describes a marriage between two spouses, and that's led members of the conservative factions in Romania and the Orthodox Church to try to make the constitution say that it's between a man and a woman. The leaders that be over there in Romania decided to hold a referendum last weekend to make that a thing. And it did not go as planned. No, they thought it was going to pass. Yeah. Like, they were confident. And then— Well, so the Orthodox Church spent a ton of money. The government spent a ton of money holding this referendum. It was this huge thing. They're advertising it. It was a big, like, get-out-the-vote thing. It's like $50 million. Yeah. And not enough people even showed up to vote (laughs) for the referendum to be counted as legitimate. Fail. Fail. It did not, like, pass— it didn't even have enough to count to even register. And let's be clear, they tried to do everything to make this count. So they made the they extended the voting period from one to two days. They dropped the threshold to make it binding from 50 to 30 percent. And like, like literally one guy show up and we'll pass this thing. Right. And it was like 20 to 21 percent of people showed up to vote, which meant it doesn't matter at all. And so after that, it seems that the government was like, fuck it. And they introduced legislation to allow explicitly same-sex partnerships, not right. marriages. But civil, civil unions. Civil unions. unions. Yeah. yeah, so the ruling party basically like staked their political claim and legitimacy on this ban referendum, and then it went down spectacularly horribly. Wah, wah. And they just went, well, shit. So now they're literally trying to push through the exact opposite legislation and trying to get legalized same-sex unions. Yeah, and Romania is a country that's been very anti-LGBTQ rights for a long time, and a lot of these proposals to allow same-sex unions have failed in the past. So I'm not too confident that this one will. But still, what a 180. I mean, this is a massive turnaround and, frankly, a a pretty big win for the LGBTQ community in Romania. It also speaks to something important about how we understand Europe, right? There's a a stylized divide in Europe analysis between— former Soviet bloc states and non-Soviet bloc states. Right. Right. And typically, and this is generally accurate, former Soviet bloc states are are more conservative on social issues on the whole. Russia is obviously the leading example and the leading propagator in in Europe. In large part because of the Orthodox Church, and and a lot of that has to do with its influence, but not only. Yeah, and a lack of internalization of modern liberal norms, right? Right, When you've only been a liberal democracy for a short period of time, comparatively speaking, you don't have this deep commitment to equality as a moral value, uh, liberal equality, not whatever the Soviets thought equality To be fair, we've had liberal democracy here for a while. We only pretty recently (laughs) passed same-sex marriage as, you know, constitutional. Uh, But, Look, it led to a sea change in attitudes. Right, and I think that's what this vote, this referendum vote really showed, is that the government and the Orthodox Church really thought that they had a finger on the pulse of kind of public sentiment. And they were clearly wrong. 
nobody showed up for this vote, and they seem to have suddenly realized people are actually supportive of LGBTQ rights. We should maybe pay attention to that. And so, again, like you said, Alex, even though this may not actually pass because of all kinds of, you know, issues with pushing through legislation in the Romanian government, cultural norms are changing. And so that alone is a really, really powerful and big win for the LGBTQ community. Guys, did we just do a good news story? Yes, actually we did. Good news. Woo. And and so that's it for us this week. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, and I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly on Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And uh, definitely check out our colleague, Alexia Underwood at Vox.com, has an awesome explainer on Khashoggi and the whole situation there. So check that out. Hey, Worldly listeners. You're a fan of our show, so you should check out Displaced. Here's a short ad that'll give you a preview of why this podcast might be up your alley. Hello, I'm Ravi Gurmathy. And I am Grant Gordon, and we are your co-hosts of a new weekly podcast called Displaced from Vox Media and the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work. Right now, we're seeing the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, the biggest number of people displaced because of conflict. You've seen it in the headlines about Syria or Yemen or Jordan. If you want to understand why that is and what can be done about it, listen to Displaced. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast.